If we become introspective, say, how am I doing? We get discouraged because the flesh fights against the spirit, the old nature, the new nature. This is a civil war in the soul of every believer that continues till the day you die. And if you look inside to see how am I doing, you'll get very discouraged. So you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, I'm trusting you. Welcome to this week's episode of the His Hill Podcast. My name is Kelly Darty, and I'm your host. Today I have with me Charles Price. Charles is someone that I met for the first time in 1982, I think it was, or maybe 83. He was a speaker at His Hill for the Thanksgiving conference, and my youth pastor brought me there. Uh, it was my first time at His Hill. And I've kind of followed Charles throughout the years, following his ministry, and from time to time, the Lord would have us in the same place, and, and we would catch up. He actually spent some time with my parents uh, uh, years ago, uh, preaching in their church. And uh, so it's been really a privilege of mine to be able to bump into him every once in a while and hear how things are going. Charles has been one of my, uh, really one of my favorite speakers for years. The Lord's used him in my life uh, just to explain to me what it means for Christ to be my life and uh, in very clear ways. So I'm really excited to have him here with us today. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kelly, very much. It's lovely to be with you and to participate in this discussion. Well, thank you for giving us your time. Charles is actually on campus this week. He's been here speaking in the Thanksgiving conference. If you're interested in hearing those messages, you can go to the His Hill Facebook page and uh, and find the, the video of those those sessions and, and listen to Charles and, and Peter Reed as well and uh, in, in the presentations that were given this week. Um, Charles, uh, now let's, let's, um, let's explain to people a little bit your connection with Torchbearers, and then I want to go back and just hear your story of how you came to know Christ and, and, and how you came to realize that he's your life and, and not just a ticket to heaven or not just uh, someone to try to be like. But anyway, uh, what is your connection with Torchbearers? Well, for many years, I lived at Cape and Ray Hall in England, which is the original Torchbearer Center. As you'll tell from my accent, I'm English, which means it's not an accent. It's the real thing. It's called English. <laughs> and I'm from England. So I uh, was on the staff at Cape and Ray Hall for 26 years altogether. Mm. For some of those years, I <clears throat> led the summer conference program. I was then led the Bible school, but most of my time was spent traveling and preaching in all kinds of situations, wherever God opened doors and wherever I received invitations. And then in 2001, against anything I was looking for, certainly, or expected, the Lord made it very clear that we were to go to Toronto in Canada, mm. where I'd been invited to become the pastor of place called the people's church and uh the details were unnecessary but in due course we we sensed that was the right thing to do and so my whole family uh moved to toronto and we've been there ever since i've now left the people's church because unfortunately years pass and you get old <laughs> So I stepped down from that. I have a relationship with the church. They call me a, a minister at large, pastor at large, mm. which sounds like something that's escaped from the zoo. 
it just means that I, I travel and speak as where and if people invite me and uh, God continues to open doors mm. for that. Okay. And you, you still are involved in, in, in Torchbearer circles, like you're here this week and, and you, you still teach, speak at some of the other centers as well. Yes. I only go where people invite me and uh, Torchbearers is really my home tribe. Mm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always at home within a torchbearer setting. I do go and teach. I've just recently taught in Bonesyhoff in Germany. I've been going to Cape May Hall in England the last few years. Mm. I was in Australia earlier this year and spent three days at the Cape May Centre there near Sydney. Okay. And I had meetings elsewhere up in Queensland, which is what I was there for. Um, but yes, so I do speak at occasional torchbearer centres. Okay. Great. Okay. Well, let's let's back up now and uh, let's let's hear let's, let's let's hear your story. You are, you are British. Uh, where did where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was born in the west of England, a place called Hereford, which is where the cattle come from. And you Americans have <laughs> slightly adjusted the name to Hereford, but Hereford is okay. actually. What it's called, and we call them Hereford cattle. So I grew up in a in, in a farming rural area. Mm. It's on the border with Wales in the west of England, and uh, I grew up surrounded by Hereford cattle actually, mm. because uh, the farm I grew up on bred them and so on. Okay. Um. So that was my upbringing, and I became a Christian at the age of twelve at a Youth for Christ event. Mm. Youth for Christ was an international organization. I used to have every month a Saturday night event in the town hall, which is the biggest hall we had in Hereford. On this particular night, they showed a Billy Graham film called Shadow of the Boomerang, which was a dramatic story uh, set against the background of a Billy Graham crusade in Australia, mm. where somebody becomes a Christian and so on. And I went to that event with my brother, the place was full when we arrived. There were no seats left, so we stood at the back. And at the end of the 90 minutes of that film, I knew I was not a Christian, and I knew I needed to become one. Somebody got up and said, if anybody here tonight, you've not yet come to Christ, but you want to, come down to the front. There'll be people here to counsel you and lead you to Christ. And people began to go to the front, but I didn't. I was too shy to do anything public like that. But I prayed, I don't remember the words I used, but the effect of it was, Lord, I'm not a Christian. I want to become one. Mm. Please make me one tonight. I didn't feel anything. When I went home that night, if somebody said to me, did you become a Christian? I wouldn't have known the answer to that. I knew I wanted to, but I didn't know if anything had happened. But the next day I went to the church in the village that I lived in. I'd gone there all my life. Next morning, which was a Sunday. And for the first time, the service was interesting. I went back on Sunday night, and for the first time, the preacher made sense. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. These people have changed overnight. This used to be dull mm. and difficult. Now suddenly it's alive, it's interesting. And 24 hours after I became a Christian, I knew I'd become a Christian because I had an appetite I never had before. Oh, okay, wow. And uh, the evidence of life is appetite, really. And uh, Jesus talks about a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And I didn't understand that language, but I experienced that in a way that was fresh and new. And I became aware that God was real and present. 
the moment I became a Christian, I didn't feel anything. But 24 hours later, I knew something had happened. Mm. How old were you? 12. 12 years old. Yeah. And did did you grow up in a Christian home? Yes. Okay. My parents were Christians, so we went to church So they so, Okay, so then they were very positive about this. I didn't tell anybody really? at the time. Okay. Partly because when I came home on that Saturday night, I didn't know if anything had happened. Okay. And um, I didn't tell anybody for quite a while, actually. But I knew something was going on inside. Mm. When, when I said I had a hunger and thirst for righteousness, I actually had a bad track record in righteousness. Mm. I, I wasn't a good boy. Okay. And um, all kinds of things were, were wrong. I'd been in trouble with the police. I had a record by the time I was 12. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I know you'd think I, I'm an innocent <laughs> young man, but I wasn't. And uh, I, I remember thinking, now I have to change. Okay. And I tried. Mm. Because what I'd understood from the gospel I'd heard preached was that you're a sinner, you're heading for hell, you need to get right with God and head to heaven. That was what I understood. Okay. And so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to heaven. What hap has to happen now is that I need to behave myself. So when I arrive in heaven, I arrive there respectably. Respective. <laughs> respectably is okay. the word. I've been behaving myself. And I tried to, but a lot of the things and the friends I had at school and all the influences that I'd surrounded myself with outside of my church circle were pulling me in a different direction. So I came into a period of, of great frustration that I had an appetite I didn't have before, but I didn't have the wherewithal to satisfy what my heart longed for. We used to have youth events uh, for Christians from different churches in the area would come together once in a while. And the preachers used to preach a similar kind of message. They'd say things like this, some of you are here tonight. And although you've been a Christian for a while, there's nothing to show for it. Right. And I'd think, uh-oh, that's me. They'd say you commit the same old sins you used to commit. Yeah, that was me. And you made us some new ones, and yeah, that was also true. Mm. And you're a mess. And I'd sit there thinking, yes, I'm a mess. And they'd say, tonight, do you want to be different? And I'd think, I long to be different. Mm. Tonight, they'd say, you need to dedicate yourself to Christ. So I'd dedicate myself. And it would last about 24 hours. And I'd go back to where I was before. And I'd go to the next meeting, and the preacher would say, there's some of you here tonight, and although you've been a Christian for a while, there's nothing to show for it. And I think, oh, oh that's me again. You still commit the same old sins, yes, and some new ones, yes, and you're a mess, yes, I'm a mess. Tonight, I'm going to ask you to rededicate yourself to Christ. Mm. So I'd rededicate myself. Now, once that process of dedicating and rededicating, I say, God, I'm sorry I failed you up until now, but, but I really mean it tonight. I really mean it tonight. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it was a good meeting, and I really, really, really meant it would last for 36 hours, I went through that process one night I got consecrated. I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded deeper. And the preacher said, you need to consecrate yourself to Christ. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's the trick. <laughs> so I, I consecrated myself, but that didn't work either. So it was, uh, it was really four years of being a Christian that I grasped 
What I had actually begun to hear, and I can explain how I began to hear that in a few minutes. Sure. But it didn't, wasn't light, it didn't, wasn't life to me. But after four years, I, I understood I'm never called to dedicate myself mm. to Christ. I'm called to die to myself, mm. which sounds very negative. But no, in order that it's no longer I who live, mm. but Christ who lives in me. Mm. And I understood the Christian life is not me trying to live for Christ. It's me living in such a relationship with Christ that he is the life that mm. is expressed then through me. Mm. And um, not only did I suddenly feel a huge relief because although I knew salvation and the Christian life was not by works, theoretically I knew that. In reality, the whole burden was on my own back. Mm -hmm. It was by works. It was, I promise you, I'll try harder. Mm -hmm. I'll do better. And finding I couldn't. And so, uh, and what happened four years later was an understanding, but it changed my life because I, I learned, you say, Lord, I'm in this situation. I know where I'm vulnerable. I know I'm likely to fail. I want to bring you into this situation mm. and trust you in this. And I remember somebody coming to me. It was during the summer when I was 16 years of age. The end of last summer, somebody came to me and said, uh, can I ask you a question? You're, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yes. Did you become a Christian this summer? I said, no, I became a Christian four years ago. Hmm. Why do you ask that? And she says to me, because something happened to you this summer. And I thought maybe you'd become a Christian. Hmm. And actually, I discovered that Christ was alive in me this mm. summer. That's what happened. It took four years. It took four years. And I think that process is probably important. I think we have to discover how utterly bankrupt we are. Mm -hmm. And I know I was only 16, but nevertheless, by then I discovered, you know, with all the best intent, and in my heart I sensed the Something had happened when I was 12 that was deep and real, and I had a love for God that I didn't have before. I, I was indifferent to God before. Mm -hmm. You know, God works in you, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure, it says mm -hmm. in Philippians. I knew God had worked in me to will according to his good pleasure, because I sensed that new desire. I didn't know he also was to work in me to act according to his good purpose. Mm -hmm. It was me doing the acting, me doing the behaving, me trying my best. Um, and, and so uh, uh, th this was liberating. And I'll never forget, I can see her now, that lady who I didn't know very well. She was an adult woman, I was 16, who said, something happened to you this summer. Mm. And I thought, phew, now... I know Christ. Because actually, when you look inside yourself, you never see what God is doing. Mm. That's mm. why we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the awesome finisher of our faith. Mm. If we become introspective and say, how am I doing? We get discouraged because 
the flesh fights against the spirit, the old nature, the new nature. This is a civil war in the soul of every believer that continues till the day you die. And if you look inside to see how am I doing, you'll get very discouraged. So you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, I'm trusting you. You're present. I believe that. I don't think things are going well right now, but I'm trusting you. Mm. And and he does the work. And, uh, you know, I could illustrate that. that. There was a man who was a big influence on me. His name was Alan Redpath. Mm. He had been pastor of Moody Church in Chicago mm -hmm. for some years. He was a Britisher, and he'd been in a church in London, came across to Chicago, went back to Edinburgh, to a church there. While he was in Edinburgh, he had a stroke, and he was unable to take the responsibility mm -hmm. of being the pastor of what was a large church. He could still preach, but he was told, you mustn't take that responsibility. So he stepped down from that, and he came to live at Cape Murray Hall. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Oh. So for, I think, 14 years, uh, he was in his mid-50s when he had his stroke. He came to, to live at Cape Mary Hall and became quite an influence and a mentor to me. When he was about 81 or two, he had a stroke. He had two strokes, actually, in fairly quick succession. And he was in hospital in the city of Birmingham in England. You Americans say burning, Birmingham <laughs> for the same spelling. In England, we call it Birmingham. And that's where he had gone to live the last couple of years, near his daughter and son-in-law okay. with his wife. And my wife, Hillary, and I went to visit him in hospital. I was driving up through Birmingham, and so I called the hospital. They had their visiting times. I said, you know, I'm just passing through. I'd love to come and see Alan Redpath, is it possible to come? And they said, well, you can come, but you need to leave by a certain time. So I said, fine. So we arrived there. He was in a wheelchair next to his bed. He had been a big, strong man, and he'd withered away to skin and bone, hmm. and he looked weak and shriveled in this, uh, in this chair. And... Um, in the course of our conversation, he said, I've never known such spiritual warfare as I'm experiencing in this wheelchair. Wow. He said, there are things that I thought I'd dealt with years ago, mm. and they're back. He said, there are temptations I thought I'd never struggle with again, and I do. Mm. He said, I didn't know my mind was so dirty. And I felt a little bit embarrassed. Mm wasn't sure what to say. So I said something silly like, well, you know, you've given the devil a hard time for many years and now you're weak. He's kind of put, putting the boot in. But that didn't help him at all. Anyway, we came time to leave because the nurses had to come and attend to him. They'd given us the time. And uh, we prayed before we left him. And as he prayed, his voice, which was weak and feeble, became strong. And he talked to God as though he knew him mm. because he did know him. Mm. And then we finished, we left the rooms. The last time I ever saw him, he died, not long afterwards. Going out in the corridor, I met a nurse coming the other way uh, to attend to him. And I said, thank you for letting us come. You look after him, won't you? She said, oh yes, we look after everybody here. I said, of course you do. But he's a special man. And she stopped. We were walking past each other, basically. It was kind of a, 
those what I'd said to him was her was while we were walking. She stopped and she said, uh, "What do you say? He's a special man." I said, "Well, we've known him for many years and we love him." She said, "Well, we think he's special too." Mm. I said, "What's special about him?" She said to me. I said, well, you know he's a Christian, don't you? She said, oh, yes, we have lots of Christians here. That's not it. Mm. I said, well, when you say he's special, what, what do you think is special? She said, well, in the staff room the other day, some of us nurses were talking about him. We were all saying we love working with Alan Redpath. And uh, one of them said, you know, whenever I spend time with Alan Redpath, I come away feeling clean. Mm. And she said, when she said that, we all said, that's it. That's it. Mm. There's something about him that's clean. Wow. So as Hillary mm. and I left, I thought, isn't that remarkable? Alan said, I've never known such spiritual warfare as I'm experiencing here. I didn't know my mind was so dirty. And the nurse says, why is he so clean? Mm. And I learned so much from that. And I learned this, that if we look inside ourselves and try to measure our spiritual growth, we're not going to see it. We're not going to be able to measure it. Uh, but it's other people who see what God is doing in our lives. And, you know, it says in Second Corinthians, about the fact we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into his image. This is a process that's going on. But it's not a process that we ourselves see. It's a process other people see. It's like, you know, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So they see you and they start to think about God. Mm. They give glory to God. Because your life gives evidence of the fact this is not you being a nice person. This is the Spirit of God in you. Mm. And we will never have the privilege of saying, my, I am so like Jesus today. Well, yeah. We'll never have that. We'll say, I failed him again today. Mm. Look at the thoughts, the battles, the temptations, the issues as I've been dealing with today, but other people see Christ. And, you know, ne never look into a, into a spiritual mirror to see how you're doing spiritually. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Mm. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. Yeah. Do that. It's your relationship with him. Don't think about yourself. In fact, when you, when you start to think about yourself, mm. You're probably going to start messing messing up. Mm. You know, a light bulb shines in a room on the base of the electricity that's that's in it. That's the source of its light. When you start to think about the light bulb, it's usually because it's dirty or it's flickering or something's distorted. When it's shining, you don't think about the bulb. It's, 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 it's the light that it gives. Mm. And I think, you know, when we start to be concerned about, am I as a bulb shining well? You think about the bulb when it's, something's distorted. So don't be introspective. Don't look at yourself. Look away to Christ. And believe that if you really 
are saying, Lord, I am dependent on you. I bring before you all those things in my life that are wrong, and I acknowledge them and thank you for your cleansing, and I trust you, and then just get on with life and don't think about being spiritual. Don't think about what effect does this have on people. That's God's business. Yeah. But he will do it. I don't think Alan Redpath was sitting there thinking, I need to be, I need to show these nurses something of Christ. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. will show himself. Mm-hmm. You don't have to show them. It's like I hear people say, you know, well, we want to go and show the love of God to these people. You can't do that. Go and show your love to these people. You go and love them. Mm-hmm. God will show his love through what you're doing. But don't try to, don't try to pretend to be God. And, right. uh, so I put on this loving right face for you but really it's not real Mm -hmm. it has to be real it has to flow out of the relationship Mm -hmm. now the heart of the christian life of course is a relationship with god through jesus christ and um you know scripture talks about abiding in christ and people say well how do you abide what is that the abiding is that is that relationship I, i i I have a relationship with my wife, and you could say she abides in me, I abide in her. We're one identity. We're united together. This is the two become one. That's what marriage is. Mm. But if I start thinking about how we're going to be one, how can we be one? You know, do we have to think the same and all this kind of thing? What what do we mean by one? No, if if I want to, if I love her, and she loves me, and I respect her. And she respects me and I trust her and she trusts me. That is the relationship that you nurture. Because I think the basic ingredients of, uh, of marriage are mutual respect, mutual trust, mutual love. The respect breaks down, the trust starts to break down, the love breaks down. If the relationship is right, it's the kids who feel secure. My parents are stable. My parents have a good relationship. Of course we fall out from time to time. There are things that, that, that go on. Because, uh, you know, two people merging together, there's always going to be friction as well. And um, that, that's true. But it's, if you focus on trying to make it right rather than focusing on being kind and gentle and generous and loving and trusting of each other, then the relationship looks after itself. And the relationship we have with, with Christ is, I mean, the, the three essential things are love, trust, and obedience. We love him because he first loved us. So to love him, the first thing we need to know is that we're loved by him. Mm. And I think that's the starting point, which many Christians know theoretically I'm loved by God, but need to know it experientially. And Romans talks about the, the, the Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. I remember reading recently that uh, at a Christian college, the professor asked 120 students in a, in a big class, mm-hmm. tell me honestly, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves you? He asked them to write, down a response to that question. Many said something like this. I I know God loves me because the Bible says he does, but I don't feel it. Others would say things like, I'm supposed to believe that God loves me because this is part of my, my creed about God. 
Of the 120, and they're all people training for ministry, only two said, I know God loves me. I experience his love. And the person who was writing about this and quoting that was saying that unless you live in that relationship where you, the Holy Spirit sheds the love of God in your heart, and that's his job to do, and you don't feel it all the time, but there need to be moments when you're conscious, I'm loved by God, I'm loved by God. Then out of that, you trust him. You depend on him. Out of that, you obey him. Mm. Because Paul talks about the obedience that comes from faith. That is, your trust in him, your your relationship with him leads to obedience. And so the, these, these are like three stools, the three, three legs on a stool in our relationship with God. We love him because he loves us. So we love him. We, we're loved by him and we love him back. We obey him. We depend on him. And uh, if one of those legs on a three-legged stool cracks or breaks, then the whole stool collapses. So these three are interdependent. Sometimes we can be obedient. That's my big thing. I obey, I obey. But that's that's the dedicating and rededicating process right. I went through. It was an attempt right. to obey. Yeah. Uh, or I just trust. I just trust. But I, 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 I don't really actively say, what do you want me to do? Mm-hmm. And consciously seek to, to obey what he's given us. Uh, and, and all this comes, I think the energy of the Christian life is, is the love of God flowing into our hearts, which is his presence in us, not because we're lovable, but because he loves us. <laughs> and he's the lover. It's the lover that makes us feel loved. It's mm. not the lovey who feels, oh, well, I'm loved because I'm, I'm lovable. Right. Yeah. That, that's not the criteria. And so those those three things, I think, go together in a healthy, wholesome relationship. Uh, but going back to where we, we went on to this, um, then we leave the consequences to God. And I don't think Alan Radpath went into that hospital room saying, I need to be a missionary here. Maybe he did. And it's good to think that way, of course. Mm-hmm. How can I be kind and loving to these people? But his life which he thought was a failure. I'm back with old temptation. He didn't use that word, but the way he talked to, to us, you know, I've never known such warfare. I feel, I didn't know my mind was what it is. I never had these struggles for a long time. He said, well, how are you feeling about your spiritual life, Alan? Are you feeling good about it? No, I'm not. Are you victorious or mm. a failure? Mm. I'm failing. But the people outside of him said, what is it about him that's so clean? Mm. That was their language as well. Mm. So clean. And that speaks to his faithfulness. You know, and, and we keep thinking that, it, I think our battle is that we, we need to, you know, that, that we need to show his faithfulness. And, but he lives the very yes, demand. Yes, that's right. When, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, you know, throughout the years, students who, who come, and in the beginning of the year, for the first time, they've come, and this will, and this will happen in the first couple of weeks, they'll, they'll hear for the first time, 
though they may have been told this before, but they hear it for the first time that, wait a minute, Christ is much more than my my ticket to heaven. He's 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 my life. Mm. He's much more than somebody for me to try to act like, but he actually is the source of my my action. And they'll hear that and they'll come up to us and say, Why have I not been told this before? Mm-hmm. And you know, they get frustrated and I can remember one one girl coming to my office so excited in the in, in the first couple of months. And she said, Kelly, I just had to come tell you that today is my birthday. And I'm so excited because on my birthday I've come to realize that Christ is my life. <laughs> I can't believe this is wonderful. And I, you know, I celebrated with her and I thought, hey, that's wonderful, you know, praise God. And then in the spring, almost nine months later, she comes back to my office, sits in the same chair, very defeated. And instead of, before she was really hopping up and down in the chair telling me these things, mm-hmm. now she's sitting in the same chair and her head tilted and she just sighed mm-hmm. and said, Kelly, when does it start? And I remember looking at her and, said, and saying, all right, good. Now let's deal with something. And I, and I have found, because I, I know from my own experience that we hear that Christ is my life. Mm. What a wonderful thing. Thank you, Jesus, for being in my life. Thank you. That's not about me. It's about you. It's not what I try to do for you. It's what you do in and through me. Thank you. Now live your life in me and live it this way. I find that my battle and so many, from my observation, our battle is that we want Christ to be our life, but we have a preconceived idea of what that's going to look like and how he's going to live. And that's what the Lord has to work in us. Mm -hmm. That, no, wait a minute. It's no longer you who live, but it's Christ who lives in you. Mm -hmm. It's his life, and it must be his way. And then I, I know for myself... As you were speaking before, you know, talking about the dedication and the rededication, uh, flashbacks were coming of sitting in in uh, the sessions in the early '80s when I when I met you for the first time, and and though I have heard, I grew up in, with a pastor who would preach to us daily that Christ is your life, and Major Thomas would come to our church. I remember as a twelve year old sitting in the balcony and thinking, "This is really good," but I don't know why this is good. <laughs> He's talking about the same God and same Jesus. Why is this so good? But I remember going to that Thanksgiving conference in, was it 82 or 83? 83. In 83. And I can remember sitting there. I even remember the notebook that I had, the color of it and everything. I remember this. And I was sitting there listening to you, and you started to talk about dedication and rededication. Mm-hmm. And I sat there, and I remember thinking, that's, that's me. <laughs> Wait a minute. And I picked up on a terminology and sitting in that conference and then going to Bible school here, mm-hmm. I my terminology changed. I started to say things like, Christ has to live in you and through you. And I even had the hand motions, you know, <laughs> Christ has <laughs> in you and through you. And I even went on, after being a Bible school te- student, teacher, uh, student here, I went on to teach. I remember sitting in a basement in Canada and, and teaching a youth group, Daniel the Lion's Den, and telling them that Christ has to live in you and through you. And I remember the youth pastor's wife coming over to me and saying, Kelly, that was so clear. And I remember kind of proud of that and think, but, you know, well, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was great. All right. And, but I had no idea what I was saying because I was, I was still having to, even I, my terminology had changed. I had learned 
the you, you know what this you know the, the proper explanation of the life of a Christian, but I had I, I still did not know the reality of what of the finished work that God had mm-hmm. had accomplished in me in Christ because I still had the expectation this is what it looks like mm-hmm. and this is how it will be and it will be me not messing up it will be me defeating this and not doing this and so my my focus was still on my performance mm-hmm. even though I had the right terminology and I see so many of our students have to go through that same process. Mm-hmm. But when it, you know, when you come to that realization, there is nothing good in me. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting that it's the, the person who said that is the same person who said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Mm-hmm. I strive, I labor according to his power, much mightily works. I, I am so thankful that Paul put that in there mm-hmm. in Romans 7, where mm-hmm. I don't do the very thing I want to, and I do the very thing I don't want to. Mm. Calls himself a wretched man, mm. but then goes on and says, who will rescue me? Mm. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in chapter eight and says, what the flesh could, what the flesh could not do, weak as it was through the law, or what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God yeah, did yeah. in Christ. And I just... And so I remember, you know, that the Lord used you to start to wake me up to this. But it is a process of discovery as well. It is. Because it's not a theory. It's it's a relationship. Mm. And uh, that relationship has to develop through all the the fumblings of our own lives and thinking, oh, it's going to be this. Mm -hmm. I, I, I tried this. Oh, that didn't work. I think... A person has come, uh, a couple of things I love to hear people say. When people say, it's so freeing, I know they've understood Mm -hmm. something. The burden is gone. But also, I think one of the important things is to stop trying to be spiritual. Because you're saying, I want to be spiritual. Stop being spiritual. Be natural. Be yourself. You're indwelt by Christ. Get on with life, you know, Whatever your job is, whatever your career is, whatever your family situation, whatever your neighborhood, whatever your finances, all the issues, get on with life, but with a disposition mm. that is, is one of trust. And and um, how can I put it? It's an attitude. Well, disposition is the best word. You know, when I was a younger Christian, I took prayer Seriously, in this sense, I had a, a loose-leaf notebook. I had three columns on each page. I had the person or event or issue I was praying for in the left column. Middle column, I'd ask God, how should I pray for this person or this event or this movement, whatever it is. And third, where I sensed answers God had given. Mm. And uh, it gave me a great structure. But it was it was still a, a shopping list kind of thing. I knew it wasn't supposed to be. But I've, since, as time goes on, I got less dependent on my notebook and more it became the prayer without ceasing, which Paul talks about. 
it's not having your eyes closed and on your knees. It's a disposition that every you instinctively say, Lord, thank you for this, or I'm trusting you in this situation. Mm-hmm. And it becomes instinctive mm-hmm. after a while, and it's an attitude, and you trust God. You don't have to see what he's doing. You just trust what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, because he promised to, 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 to work and uh, to bring about fruit is, is a phrase that he used. You abide in me and you will bear much fruit. And in Galatians, about the fruit of the Spirit is certain things. And I think it's important that we understand this is fruit and not flowers. And mm. I'll explain the difference. Mm. Flowers are something that you might cut and and put in a room to cheer it up. Mm-hmm. Flowers look nice; they, they make things look nice. Fruit have an entirely different function. You don't say this place is a bit drab. Let me hang up a banana. So that isn't going to help. <laughs> banana uh, fruit is for consumption. It's for eating. It's for feeding hunger in people, and. When we start a I want to be spiritual kind of mentality, it's because I want flowers to make the place look nice. I want to I want to be a nice person around here. Being a Christian is not, you know, so your neighbors have somebody who speaks to them every morning and doesn't play their music at midnight in full <laughs> volume and and so on. They're just nice people, that's flowers. Mm. Fruit is my neighbor is in trouble or they need to feed on my patience, Mm. my peace, Mm. my joy, my love. It's for feeding other people. Mm. And when we abide in Christ and we have this fellowship with Christ, Lord, I'm getting on with my life today, whatever I feel like, whether I feel good or bad or indifferent, whether the weather is sun shining or it's raining, I'm just going to trust you today and he brings us across people's paths we don't think I'm supposed to be loving I'm going to try to be loving my wife Hilary says free yourself from all the musts and the mustn'ts and the oughts and the oughtn'ts Mm. of the Christian life because that's external Mm. imposition I ought to do this I should do this Mm -hmm. I shouldn't do that no just live out of your relationship with God and uh, and and what happens will be his business, mm. and you will feed people in their souls. You won't know you're doing so. Mm. They won't know they're plucking some fruit. It's like Alan Redpath. It's just the nurses say, "Man, I feel clean having been with this man." Mm. You know, they're feeding on that. They don't mm-hmm. know it. He doesn't mm-hmm. know it. They don't know what it is. They just like it. Mm. <laughs> and so it, it, it's it's that relationship, you know. I preach, you know, all the time. I've long stopped taking responsibility for what my preaching should accomplish because Mm. otherwise you try to measure it, you go home depressed. You just trust God to do his work in people's lives. And I've been at the Thanksgiving conference this week and uh, a number of encouraging things. There's a a man here with his wife and daughters, and he said, I saw you were speaking here. I wanted to come down and see you because you came to the college I was a student in 
back in about 2002 or something. And he told me I'd been through such difficult, frustrating times. I was battling things in my life. And I was at this Christian college and I thought, I'm ready to give this up. And then they had this Christian Life Week, whatever they called it, and I was the speaker. And he said, uh, you talked about, are you ready to give up? Are you struggling? And he said, you described me. I thought, oh, yeah, I'm, that's exactly me. Mm. And he said, that week changed my life. It gave me new hope. He said, I've never, I've never seen him since. I didn't even know he existed. I didn't know anything about what went on that week. Mm. And he didn't because, does this work or not? Is this real or not? And he said, and that relationship was the base, that, that was the base of the relationship I was able to, to develop with Christ. And he's now, I mean, he's a pastor now. He's, he's told me where he's pastoring. He was here this week. Now the guy said, I was a student here in 1981. That's 42 years ago. And he said, I came here as a student. My parents wanted me to come. I didn't want to come. So we got to the base of where his head is with my friend, he said, and we... We, we stopped our vehicle and we offloaded all the beer cans so we would arrive clean. But he said, everything bored me. Mm. And I got a magazine. I sit in the back row and people thought I had my Bible, but I was reading a magazine. He said, you were speaking on the Beatitudes. I remember this. He said, and uh, at one point you told a story and it made me listen. And then the uh, application of that story Oh, I'd never heard that before. Wow. And he said, I folded up my magazine. I never opened it again. Mm. He said, and uh, that was the beginning of what became life-changing. No, I didn't know that was going on. You didn't know that's going on. And you know, he ended up... Uh, oh, you know who I'm I know the about, story, so I, I, uh, you're, you're describing one okay. of my best friends. Oh, is that right? <laughs> but, you know, he went on to teach here. Yeah, that's right. He, that's right, he did. I yeah. didn't know that either yeah. until he told and me. And so his first class... Remember what you were talking about. I don't want you to, I don't want to mess that up, but I, yeah. I think you'll find this interesting the, and funny. His very first class that he taught here, which was the first time he ever taught anywhere. Yeah. I had all the students put magazines in their notebooks. And ah. as he started to teach, I had them pull their, no, their magazines out. And he got, he got <laughs> well a kick done. out of well that. Well done. <laughs> but go ahead. That's, Gave that's, a My point is, don't try to measure the fruit the consequences of what you're doing. Mm. Jeremiah is my favorite Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah never saw a convert in 40 years of preaching in Judah. He had three sympathizers. But uh, nobody who ever was a convert. His closest friend was his secretary called Barak. And uh, he had to write a whole chapter to him. Do not think great things for yourself, he said. But he never saw any results. And he was depressive, you know, and we'd call him melancholic these days. Jerusalem was destroyed. People were taken away to exile. He told them this would happen, but nobody listened to him unless they got right with God. And he writes a postscript called Lamentations, which means weeping. Mm. He talks about walking through the rubble of Jerusalem and weeping and then Midley says, and then I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. I cannot see what God has done here. God seems to have done nothing. We're just destroyed as a people. But I know his love has not given up at any point. His mercies don't give up. 
they're new every morning and he turns around there's a freshness here he was kidnapped taken off to egypt and died there and if you went to jeremiah before he died and said <clears throat> jeremiah you've you've been a prophet for 40 years you must have had some amazing times with great success tell me about some of your best moments you say there weren't any it was just discouragement depression because he did get depressed. He talked about this. God has forsaken me. God has joked with me, he says at one stage. God has had sport at my expense. He didn't know that he was leaving behind one of the longest books in the Bible. <laughs> he didn't know when, you know, 600 years later, Jesus was with his disciples, who do men said I am? And one of the answers was, some say you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, how would they know about me? And they think the Messiah was me, you know. He had no idea what God was doing. And so it's good to take great comfort from that because mm -hmm. Jesus talked about, you know, sow going to sow seed. And, 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 and he says, it falls in all kinds of places. Some bit on rocky soil doesn't go anywhere. Some bit amongst stones. It looks good, but nothing happens long term. Some amongst weeds, it gets strangled. Some it falls on good soil and it produces fruit. But the life, my point there, the, the life is not in the sower, it's in the seed. Yeah. And if we are living lives dependent on God, obedient to God, we can trust mm -hmm. that He is going to do things, whether we see it or not. Yeah. But leave it to Him, don't try to measure it. Yeah. It's His you know, business. Yeah. It's There's that life. phrase with God, nothing is impossible. You can read that to say, with God, you can do anything and jump over the moon. Don't read it that way. Mm -hmm. Read it this way. With God, it's impossible that nothing happens. Mm. Nothing isn't impossible. Mm. You say, I'm obeying God, I'm trusting God, and nothing's happening. No, it's impossible. Yes. And nothing's happening. You just don't know what's happening. Thank you so much for starting off this new year by listening to today's episode of the His Hill Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and that it was an encouragement to your heart. Our winter-spring term begins this coming Wednesday, and we are looking forward to having all of our new and returning students flood the hilltop in just a few days. We have five new students joining us this semester from Europe, Canada, and around the states, bringing the total number of students here this term to 68. Please keep the new students in your prayers that they would be encouraged at heart for what lies ahead and that they would adjust here quickly. Thank you again for tuning in to the His Hill podcast today. You've been listening to our host, Kelly Doherty, along with Charles Price. And as always, remember to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm Lizzie, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>